In this episode, I answer the question, where have you been? I also turn down a chance to be on television, wonder about the limits of vegetarianism, and ponder who gets saved, all on the way to answering the question, what do all Christians have in common? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. It's been a long time since my last episode, and I wish I could tell you that I've been scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia for the last couple of weeks, but that's really not the case at all. We've been moving, and it's taken this long to get an opportunity to write and record, and I'm still building the new recording studio that's going to be in our place, so forgive some sound deficit quality you may hear while I'm using this little corner of our bedroom during this time of transition. Now, on to the episode. So as I began this episode, I realized I had way too much material to talk about in a single podcast. So this is going to be the first installment of a two-part series. The first is, what do we have in common as Christians? And the second part will be, and what's expected of us as Christians? In this episode, I'll deal generally with Christianity, and in the next, I'm going to talk about my experience in my faith tradition more specifically. About 20 years ago, I was approached by a company that was putting together a television commercial. It was an ad for a local music store that had been really helpful to me, both in terms of my own music and also in terms of the church. I'd done, as I said, some personal business with them, and I also had them design and install a sound system at the church where I was working. They wanted me to help with a television commercial they were doing, and I was more than happy to help because I had, as I said, found them to be such a reputable and wonderful shop. The advertising company had an idea that I would wear my black shirt, as clergy sometimes do, and my collar that signified I was ordained, and I would enter the shop and say that I needed help. I would then be seen talking to a salesperson while the voiceover told people about all the wonderful services that the store provided. The commercial would end with my shaking the salesperson's hand, thanking him, and proclaiming that he was heaven-sent, the script said, which would be followed by illumination, light coming from above, and the sounds of angels singing. Aside from the premise feeling a little hokey to me, okay, a lot hokey to me, I found myself uneasy with my part. And it wasn't the silliness of the ending that bothered me, well, much. It was my discomfort at using my position as an ordained minister to try to convince people to patronize this particular store, regardless of how great I thought the store was. When they asked me to help, it hadn't really occurred to me that they wanted me as an Episcopal priest. I really just had thought, oh, they want me as Dan, a frequent customer. It was one of those situations where I was so eager to be helpful that I had to take a moment, slow down, and really process if this was the thing for me. In the end, I decided not to be part of the commercial and instead just to loan them the shirt and the collar so they could hire an actor to play the part. 
I think all of us, from time to time, have had to balance our desire to be a part of something, and then on the other hand, stop and think about what was really being asked of us. When I was a young child, as many kids do, I loved to swim. But growing up in the South in the 60s and 70s, the places where many of my friends from school belonged in order to swim, well, those places forbid membership to people of color and non-Christians. And my father was an ordained minister, and both of my parents were deeply committed to the civil rights movement, and they weren't ever going to allow us to belong to any club that had racial or religious restrictions as to who could join. Now, as I've become an adult, I myself have walked away from a number of clubs and opportunities which I realize asked more from me than I was willing to promise or had expectations which didn't jibe with who I professed to be. Which brings us to a good question. What is required to be a Christian? Now, if you remember, if you've been following along with the episodes, episode 17 offered a primer on Islam. It set forth fairly simple set of pillars, as they're called, that all people who profess the faith of Islam would agree to. Now, not everyone is equally consistent in their practice, but across the world, people who claim Islam as their faith would agree to these five pillars. Now, to me, there are really two questions. What do we all, and I mean more or less, what do we all have in common? And number two, what are we committing to when we commit to being a Christian? We will deal, as I said, with the first of these in this podcast. I would offer that there are seven elements that I would say all people who proclaim Christianity would agree as being central to the faith, though how we define them after agreeing might vary from denomination to denomination and even person to person. These are not expectations of behavior, but simply common ground amongst most Christians. They are God, Jesus, the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness, love, and salvation. By the way, these are not any official list. This is just my rougher effort to create a list of things we have in common. I'll not make any claim that these seven items I've named are unique to Christianity versus other religions. Obviously, there are other religions that believe in God, forgiveness, love, salvation. Islam even acknowledges the importance of Jesus in the story of their faith, but they would call him a prophet, not the Messiah. These seven elements that I have named are not all exclusive to Christianity, but are seven common elements that almost all Christians would share. Are there exceptions to these? Well, of course. I was on the internet and read something from a person who was indignant that people did not understand his lifestyle choice. He said he was a vegan and that he often got pushback from surprisingly enough, other vegans because he chose occasionally to eat meat. He wanted the world to understand that there are vegans who eat meat. And then he said, get over it. Now, I'll have to tell you, I really don't understand what he means and will not attempt to explain his point. My point being that you can find people who will claim exceptions to anything within a belief system. And Christianity is no different. Nonetheless, these seven items that I've named and we'll be talking about 
would be claimed by every Christian denomination that I can think of. Let's begin with God. I've occasionally had parishioners try to distill Christianity down into what we do. They will say Christianity is really just about being nice to people and doing good things. But I have to disagree with that because the truth is what we do begins with what we believe. We believe in a God who created us and all that exists. We believe that God desires a relationship with us and has some hopes and expectations as to how we live. And those beliefs shape and direct how we behave, hopefully. But it would be an error to think that the behavioral fruit is the core of who we are. We believe in a loving God who calls us into relationship through a particular individual, Jesus. And that's the tree. Our good deeds are indeed important, but they are fruits of the tree, not the tree itself. Which leads us into the absolutely essential hallmark of being a Christian. Jesus. We've already said that God desires a relationship with humanity, and we believe Jesus was the ultimate effort on the part of God to establish that relationship. God took flesh, lived in our midst, taught, and ultimately died in the form of Jesus. And we believe those acts to be transformative for humanity. As Christians, we understand Jesus to be God incarnate, and we understand Jesus to be the ultimate revelation of God's desire for us. Okay, our progression through these common elements of Christianity now brings us to the Bible. If Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's will, then why do Christians even need the Bible? Well, first and foremost, if you were lucky enough to live in the first century in Israel, meet Jesus, become one of his followers, then you really didn't have a need for Scripture. But as years began to pass, and the people of the church realized they were creating something for the long haul, then recording the words and stories of Jesus and the early church became important for those who had not had the opportunity to meet him personally. In other words, people like us. For us, the Bible is the primary way in which the teachings of Jesus get passed on to us and future generations. The Bible serves the purpose of giving us direction as to how we're expected to live, worship God, relate to each other and creation. And I would argue that the Bible serves as a sort of religious family photo album. When a family gets together for the holiday, it wouldn't be unusual for several of them to gather around and look at the family photo album. It offers snapshots of past generations and helps family members understand where they came from. The Bible is not only spiritual direction, but it's also our religious and spiritual history all rolled into the same book. I will also add, when I was ordained, my denomination had us state publicly as part of our ordination service. I solemnly declare that I do believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation. If you're trying to understand salvation, in the Christian church, we believe everything you need to know will be contained in the Bible. What's worth remembering is that though the Bible contains all things necessary for salvation, not everything in the Bible is equally necessary for salvation. 
This may sound, for some, a little more radical than it actually is. Let's compare a passage from Exodus and a passage from the book of John. The passage from John is found in the third chapter and is likely the most famously cited passage in the New Testament. You'll often see people hold up signs at sporting events with this Bible passage, John 3.16, on them. The reason for this is that it's generally considered to be a concise summation of the Christian message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the passage from Exodus is found in the 28th chapter and is actually the whole chapter. There are 43 verses in that chapter that describe every bit of clothing worn by the Israelite high priest, from the outer garments to the breastplate down to the undergarments. Now, these clothing expectations for the high priest are truly interesting, but I would argue that if you're trying to understand and follow the way of Christ, these two passages are not of equal value when discerning your Christian path. Now, let me say pretty firmly here, please do not hear me as saying, therefore the New Testament is important and the Old Testament is not. One of my favorite passages to teach and preach about comes from the Old Testament and is the story of Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac. I believe that it's a hugely important passage and has a lot to say to us, which is why I happen to use it as my subject for the 14th episode of this podcast. When I was a seminarian, I did an internship at a hospital. On occasion, Christian groups would drop by this hospital and give away free Bibles, except once I picked one up and looked at it, they weren't actually Bibles. They contained the New Testament and the book of Psalms, but they omitted the rest of the Old Testament. And so these books they're giving away, they aren't Bibles. They are New Testaments with one book from the Old Testament. The Bible is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Take anything away and you don't have the Bible. We'd not describe a house and say the living room is more important than the foundation. That would, of course, be ridiculous as would any attempt to separate Christianity from its Old Testament foundation. Also, the majority of Christians may agree that all things necessary for salvation are contained in the Bible, but we may not agree from denomination to denomination, or even again from even person to person, as to which are the most important passages. Example, While the vast majority of Christians worship on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave, therefore every Sunday for us is a mini-celebration of Easter, Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturday because they place more importance on keeping the Sabbath as Scripture dictates on Saturday rather than worshiping on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. This brings us to the Lord's Prayer. This is the closest we come to a common element of worship across denominations. First, we do have two creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, that are used across many Christian churches, but not with the same ubiquity as the Lord's Prayer. And it would be fair for you to say at this point, wait a minute, the Lord's Prayer, that's in the Bible, so isn't that a repeat of one of the previous items on the list? That's true. But the Lord's Prayer is so commonly used in worship across Christian denominations that I think it's worth its own slot. The Lord's Prayer 
is, as a matter of fact, worth a podcast of its own. But for today, let's realize its importance is found in that we are saying the words that Jesus taught us himself. One of his disciples asked him to teach them to pray as John the baptizer's disciples taught them. This prayer was what he gave them. And amongst Christians, it offers us a common prayer that we can say together. Next on our list is forgiveness, and I'm going to talk about it in conjunction with the final element on the list, salvation. Central to the Christian message is that we are to receive salvation. We are to receive eternal life. Necessary to that wonderful gift is forgiveness. Not one of us, as far as I'm concerned, has ever lived a life that makes us worthy of such a wonderful gift. So we understand that God, through Jesus, forgives us our transgressions, both great and small, and makes it possible for us to receive the gift of salvation. But here is where we may agree on the words, but there's a wide variance as to what they mean. The question immediately arises, who is forgiven and therefore who receives salvation? Some people read the book of Revelation and interpret that the very finite number of 144,000 will ultimately be saved, allowed into heaven, and nobody else gets in. On the other end of the spectrum is the belief that Jesus came to save all of humanity. And these followers, these believers, look to John 12, 32, which says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This sounds like Jesus is planning to bring everyone to heaven, not just a select few. Last, but certainly not least, is perhaps the forgotten stepchild on the list. Love. Jesus talks a great deal about love. In Matthew 22, someone approaches Jesus and asks him, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he says to the person who asked the question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says the two greatest commandments are about love. Love God and love each other. Also, in the Gospel of Luke, someone asks Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives them the same exact answer that he gave to the previous question. To which they then ask, But who is my neighbor? This is when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which was Jesus' way of saying, your neighbor is everyone, even those the world tells you you're supposed to despise. They are all your neighbor. In the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches the disciples that they will be recognizable to the world by one thing, and it is their love. So as I'm closing today, I leave you with this question. If you are a Christian, do you so exude love in every aspect of your life for all of humanity that the world around you says, surely that person must be a Christian? That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you.
I invite you to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Just remember, both my Twitter and my email are skypilot with three T's. That's S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. My email is skypilot at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at skypilot. And remember, watch for the next episode when we talk about what are the expectations of being a Christian. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. Thank you.